for God's Word and turn to John 10. John chapter 10, we'll read verses 1 through 30 this morning. John 10, 1 through 30, here is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To keep the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. But this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand that is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Lord loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep, so I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. The demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father are one. Heavenly Father, we plead with you now that you would cause us to see the glory of our great shepherd. And as we study the words of our Savior here in this discourse in John, may this word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our minds. And what we find difficult and controversial, we pray, O Lord, that we would humbly receive by faith, knowing that these are the words of our sovereign Lord. And he is, as he expresses the intention of his atoning work, may we grasp it, may we delight in it, may we give you the praise for it. And thank you ahead of time for sending your son, Jesus, to die for me and for my sins. Lord, hear us and direct us now by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
Well, when we began our current sermon series on Calvinism, uh, we started with an unsavory truth. That is the doctrine of total depravity. That is, that every man is totally sinful in every aspect of his being. In the second sermon in this series, we preached on the controversial truth of unconditional election. That is, in eternity past, God the Father chose a definite number unto salvation in Jesus Christ. And now this morning we come to the next link in the Calvinistic chain, sometimes summarized as tulip. We come to not simply a controversial truth or an unsavory truth, uh, we come rather to a despised truth. A despised truth. And that despised truth is this, that Jesus died to save a definite, certain number of people for their sins. That's the doctrine of limited atonement. Not that Jesus went to the cross to die for no one. Not that Jesus went to the cross to die for everyone. But that Jesus went to the cross to die for someone. For some. For a definite number. And we believe that truth because Jesus discloses it here in this Good Shepherd discourse among other places. This morning we turn to John chapter 10 and we see that Jesus begins instructing uh, these Jewish onlookers in a parable to disclose his identity. We begin to jump into John chapter 10. We need some background to understand what is going on here in John 10. And we get something of the sense of the context and the timing of this discourse if you were to look at verse 22. Now verse 22 occurs at a separate time from the uh, great shepherd discourse. It says it happened at the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication uh, was a holiday instituted by Judas Maccabeus in about 164 B.C. It was designed to commemorate the cleansing of the uh, the temple after the defilements of uh, pagan worship offered by Antiochus Epiphanes. It took place in the month of December. It's what we now would call Hanukkah. But if you look back from verse 22, uh, we get another important textual clue. And you see that in verse 21, when it says, Others were saying. That is, people who were standing around listening to Jesus, they were saying that uh, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed man. And then they went on to say, A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Now that's a very important textual clue there because uh, as you look at John 10 you realize there's no uh, blind person at all. In order to understand the reference there you have to go back into John chapter 9 and to this great healing miracle uh, that Jesus performs upon a man who was blind from his youth. We're told in John chapter 9 uh, verse 5 While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground. He made clay of the spittle and he applied it to the clay to his eyes and he said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went and washed and he came back to see. Now, we need to go back one more chapter to grasp the context of that. Notice there that Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam. A significant place because in this uh, Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs in October, just after the Day of Atonement, 
Uh, during the course of that feast, there was a ceremonial water drawing from the pool of Siloam to commemorate God providing water from the rock as Israel wandered in the wilderness. There was also another significant ceremonial event during the course of that feast. And it was the lighting of candles to commemorate uh, God leading His people through the wilderness by the pillar of fire. Now Jesus, in the course of that Feast of Tabernacles, stands up and He says, I am the light of the world. He proclaims Himself to be the fulfillment of that Jewish ceremony of the lighting of the candles. And He says, I am the light of the world. And then in John chapter 8, in the course of that same feast, He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto Me and drink. Pointing again that He is the fulfillment of that particular ceremony and saying that the real water is not water from a rock. It's not water from the pool of Siloam. It is the water that comes from Him as John interprets to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In every way, Jesus ties Himself to that feast and to its ceremonies and says, I am the fulfillment of these ceremonies of Judaism. I am the meaning of what those things pointed to. Now it's very interesting as you come into John chapter 9 that Jesus ties those two things together as He approaches this blind man. He has just proclaimed to the Jews that He is the fulfillment of all of those things. The Jews stand up immediately at that Feast of Dedication in October and they condemn Him and they say that He is a religious charlatan, that He is a violator of God's law. They argue with Him to the point that they take up stones to kill Him at the end of John chapter 8 because he claims to be the Lord himself. Now I believe it was probably on that day that as he leaves that feast of dedication on the last day of the feast which would have been a Sabbath day as he walks down the road he encounters this blind man of John chapter 9. And at that point he ties together the themes of those discourses which he offered in the Feast of Dedication, and he shows himself to be the light of the world by opening the blind man's eyes, and he shows himself to be the fulfillment of, and in him are the fulfillment of, those spiritual blessings which were a ceremonial pictured in the drawing of water of the Pool of Siloam, because he sends this blind man right to that pool to wash his eyes, and he receives sight. He directs the blind man to himself as the fulfillment of the types and shadows, then, of the Old Testament law. Well, as you come into John chapter 10, then you see that these Jews are aware of that healing. Now, it could very well be that John chapter 10 uh, happens immediately after the healing in John chapter 9. It could have been on the same day. It could have been a couple of days later. It could have been a month later. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is that John 10 happens somewhere between the Feast of Tabernacles and this Feast of Dedication. Somewhere between October and somewhere between December. And by the way, this is about three months before he goes to the cross. That is the context then of this great shepherd discourse. And now Jesus uses the great shepherd discourse to comment on what he has just done with the blind man and to explain its significance. We see here, uh, Jesus begins to explain the significance of what he has done with this blind man by using the parable of a sheep pit. 
He takes the image from the rural setting. He talks about a pin. And it was common in those days in small rural villages where they had small herds of sheep. For all of the villagers to take their sheep out into the pastures during the daytime and then to bring them back and put them in a centralized pen and to hire somebody who would stand at the door. And the next morning when the owner of some of the sheep that were in there would come to the sheep pen, he would have to identify himself as the lawful owner and he would do that by playing on some sort of a flute or a pipe, a particular noise or pitch, and the sheep that were owned by him would recognize that and they would come out of the fold. Now Jesus uses this parable to set up a contrast between people who lawfully bring sheep out of the pen and those who steal. In verse 1 he says, those who do not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way is a thief and the robber. So Jesus says, there's two kinds of people. There are authorized shepherds and there are thieves and robbers. He contrasts two kinds of actions. The sheep who enters by the door and the thieves who climb over and steal. He he contrasts two kinds of responses. Verses 3 and 4 say that when the right shepherd comes, the authorized shepherd comes, and he blows his pipe and he calls them out by name, that his own sheep, the sheep that are owned by him, come out to meet him. And he says, on the other hand, the sheep that are targeted by the thieves and robbers, in verse 5, he says that they flee. So Jesus is setting up a parable now to explain the significance, the religious significance of his actions and the religious significance of the actions of the religious leaders of Judaism. And the first thing that he's really doing here in this discourse is he contrasts two kinds of people and two kinds of actions is he is looking at the Jewish leaders of his day and he is indicting them. He calls the leaders of Judaism thieves and robbers. But he doesn't just indict them. He does it in a particular way, using the voice of prophecy. You see, what stands behind this great shepherd discourse in John 10 is not simply a rural pastoral image. It's the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 34. You don't have to turn there, but in this chapter, the Lord himself brings an accusation against the rulers of the people of Israel. And God says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't they feed the flock? He says, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. And you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. And those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. And the broken, you have not bound up. And the scattered, you have not brought back. And this particular part of the prophetic lawsuit ends in verse 10 with the Lord saying, I'm against the shepherds. I will deliver my flock from their mouth. But Jesus now is very consciously identifying the religious leaders of his day with those false shepherds of Ezekiel chapter 34 who won't feed the flock, who will not heal the distressed, who will not bind up the broken, and are just devouring the sheep. But not only does he identify the leaders with the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34, he identifies himself with the positive aspect of that prophecy in Ezekiel 34 as the Lord goes on to say, I myself will come and search for my sheep 
And I will feed them in a good pasture. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will be their shepherd. You see, Jesus is clearly applying that uh, prophecy to himself because as you skip forward to verse 11, after he contrasts uh, again with the thieves and robbers breaking into steals, he's pointing out the false shepherds, he comes back to himself in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He's claiming himself to be the Lord. He's claiming himself to be the servant of David. He is claiming that his actions in healing this blind man are like the great shepherd who was prophesied of in Ezekiel 34 who will heal the distressed and bind up the broken and give sight to the blind. Jesus is saying, that's me. The false shepherds and false leaders of Israel have been pinning up the sheep exploiting them and harming them. Jesus calls that blind man out of that sheepfold and out of oppression, gives him sight, discloses to him his identity and provides him with rest and salvation. Now Jesus comes back to explain more about this parable in the latter half of our text here. John concedes that it was a figure of speech that people didn't understand. So Jesus now turns to a different image, to an image of a sheep pen out in the pastures. Those kind of sheep pen, um, it would be one shepherd with his flock, and at night he would lead them into that fold, and then he himself would stand in the door to keep thieves and wolves and harmful critters out. And so Jesus now, in verse 11, says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life. You see, for Jesus to be this good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, we see, secondly, that Jesus himself fulfills that role by a great cost to himself by laying down his life for the sheep. And that brings us closer now to our topic this morning, which is the topic of limited atonement. Because Jesus begins here by saying in verse 9, He is the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. First of all, Jesus says, uh, the benefits and the value of following me as this shepherd is that you will be saved. I am the door. He's saying, I am the exclusive way to salvation. Not ceremonies, not feasts, not Judaistic religion. He points to himself as the fulfillment. He points in himself as the source of salvation and mercy and blessing. Then he says, if you want any of those things, You must come to me. I am the door. Through me salvation comes. But to get the salvation, this is the key. Jesus now says, He lays down His life for the sheep. Now that word there, for the sheep, is a very important word. For. It points to a sacrificial death. For. You can turn with me over to John 11 to see the sense and how that preposition is used. As you're turning over there, I'll just note simply that uh, that preposition for, who pair, is used 13 times in John's Gospel. 
And 11 of those times, it clearly refers to somebody sacrificially laying down their life. And, and you can uh, verify that by just seeing how it's used here in John 11, verse 50, where Caiaphas unwittingly prophesies as high priest uh, of Israel uh, of Jesus' death. His sacrificial death. He says, Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. You go on to verse 51. John looks back at that and explains it. And he says, Now he did not say this on his own initiative of being high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. All I'm trying to, uh, to, to demonstrate here is when Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, He is using sacrificial imagery and terms to describe that His death will be a substitutionary atonement for these sheep. A particular kind of death. But it's not just a death, it's not just a sacrifice, it's not just atonement in general. We see here now that Jesus says it's specific. As you come back to John chapter 10, he says, He lays down his life for the sheep. That's definite. There's a definite object in mind here when Jesus lays down his life sacrificially. I want us to be very clear about this from Jesus' own words. Jesus does not say he lays down his life for sheep in general. He does not say that he lays down his life for everyone. He does not say that he doesn't lay down his life for anyone. Jesus makes it clear he lays down his life for someone. He says he lays down his life for the sheep. A definite object. A definite group. And that, that language holds all throughout John chapter 10 here. It holds from the uh, prophetic imagery that stands behind this passage from Ezekiel chapter 34. There in that uh, prophecy, God makes it clear that He distinguishes between some sheep within Judaism to save and to heal and to deliver. Not all the sheep. He says some of the sheep. As you work your way through John chapter 10, you see this definiteness emerging again. He says, the sheep in verse 11. If you drop down to verse 15, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. If you back up to verse 3, you see it's definite again. To him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own. Now remember, that's why, the reason why that's so significant is because we said in the image that Jesus uses of the sheep pen, there are a number of sheep in that pen who have different owners. So when the good shepherd goes to that pen, he doesn't blow his flute or his whistle or call out with his voice and all of the sheep come out and stampede him. No, he calls out to a particular number here and the, the word that is used is his own, ta'idiyah. His own possession, he calls out. His own sheep. And he leaves the rest in the pen. And then he goes on to say that he knows those sheep by name. Verse 14, he says, I know my own, and my own know me. You see, again, the sheep are not some indefinite, unknown group of people. He says, I know my sheep. I know my own. 
verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. He's referring to the pen of Judaism. He says, outside of this fold, there are other sheep. And of course, that's simply a reference to the Gentile. But he knows he has sheep out there. He knows who they are. Verse 26, another very important verse. The reason why I read this is because this is reflected on. Uh, Jesus uses the imagery of the John uh, 10 Good Shepherd discourse. This is about three months later possibly, but he still brings up the same theme again. And he says to uh, the Jewish leaders who are interrogating him and questioning him in verse 26, he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep again definiteness, mine. He owns a particular group of sheep within Judaism. And it's very important that you see how that word because functions. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He is not here giving characteristics of sheepiness. Sheep are the kind of people who believe. He doesn't say that at all. He says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. He assigns the reason for why they believe and others don't. They're sheep. His sheep. And he says of those in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Verse 28, he says, I give to them. That is my sheep eternal life. All throughout this passage, the language of Definiteness is used. As we think about the doctrine of limited atonement, that Jesus died not for the whole world, not for no one, but for someone, for particular people, John 10 is very clear. Jesus' words are unambiguous. But it's not just in John 10 that they work that way. As you work through John's gospel, you see the same thing emerge. Now, I know some of you might be saying right now, but what of John 3.16? What is John 3.16? That, that sounds to me that it says something very different than the definite language that Jesus uses here in John 10. And there, of course, in John 3.16, John makes this editorial comment that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Now there it would seem that John is saying that Jesus died for the whole world. Well, what's going on in John 3.16? Well, the first thing that's going on in John 3.16 is Jesus, or rather John, is accenting the love of God. That's really what is the emphasis of John 3.16. God so loved. That's, that's what he's accenting. He's so loved. And, and, and the love of God is accented here by the object, world. That is not the a totality of human population from the beginning of the world to the end. The world, as John uses that word, refers to uh, people who are in rebellion, who are in darkness who are in resistance to God's will and His purposes, who are against His Christ. That accents the love of God. John is saying, God so loved people like this. But then you go to verse 17 and you see that uh, the giving of the Son to die is definite. He says, God did not send uh, the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved. That's definite. 
He doesn't say that no one will be saved. He says someone will be saved. The world. You say, oh, that sounds like universal atonement. Well, maybe it does. But you have to read John and how he uses the word world and, under, and define world within that context. And, and we're not doing that this morning. But I'm just simply pointing out that if you go with verse 17, it's still definite. World will be saved. Not maybe, not to make it possible, but certain. But this concept of Jesus having a definite group of people to lay down his life for is found in other places in John. In John chapter 6, uh, Jesus says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's John 6.37. Uh, John 6.39 says, It's the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given, I will lose nothing. But again there, uh, that the Father has given a definite group of people to Jesus. Uh, John chapter 17, Jesus says, uh, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may have eternal life. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. Uh, Repeatedly, Jesus refers to this inheritance, to this group of people, to a definite number of people who have been given There's one last passage, and I hope for you to turn there and see it for yourself. John 17, 9, the priestly intercession of Christ uh, confirms the definiteness of his priestly work of sacrifice. The priestly intercession of Christ confirms the definiteness of the priestly sacrifice. John 17, 9, Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see, Jesus says there's two groups. There's the ones you have given me, and then there's everybody else. And Jesus I don't pray for the group that you haven't given me. I pray for these. Yours. My possession. Jesus says he's only interceding on behalf of those given his elect. Now, we would have to say that either Jesus is a lazy and ineffective and unloving high priest by not praying for all those other people if he really gave himself for them. Which is blasphemous to even utter, if you think about it. Or Jesus is only praying for the ones that have been given to him because he only laid down his life for them. His atonement only focuses upon them. So, this definiteness that we see here in John 10 lays down his life for the sheep fits with John 10, the entire context of John 10. It fits with the entire context of John's Gospel. It fits with the entire concept of Old Testament sacrifice. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. We're told in verse 9, Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lock for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. So one of the goats that was offered on the Day of Atonement was to be offered as a sin offering. You say, well, what's so important about a sin offering? Well, 
You go back to Leviticus 4, and you see where the rules are set forth for a sin offering, and in every example of the use of this offering, the worshiper places his hands on the goat, and symbolically lays his sin on the goat, and then he goes to sacrifice. In other words, uh, that sacrifice is not for no one, That sacrifice is not for everyone. That sacrifice is particularly for the sin of that person. That goes goes to represent a person. Same thing is true of the second goat, the scapegoat. It says, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Again, the goat was sent off and dies in the wilderness for definite people. By the way, the imagery of that day of atonement and the goat there is applied to Jesus numerous times in the New Testament, showing that Jesus exhausts and fulfills the types. The whole New Testament is full of this doctrine of substitutionary atonement. When you read to the New Testament, you find repeatedly the use of language of Jesus dying in the place of, or for, or instead of, or on behalf of. Jesus goes uh, to the cross for somebody. The language of the effect of the atonement throughout the New Testament suggests that Jesus definitely accomplish something on the cross for his people because the uh, atoning work of Christ is described in terms of redemption. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, implying that Christ actually redeemed for us. And if you know anything about the concept of redemption, a ransom price was given definitely for somebody and that caused their release. It was definite. It wasn't indefinite. The concept of satisfaction is definite. Colossians 2.14 says that Jesus canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, nailing it to his cross. You see, canceled. It actually affected something. His death canceled that decree. The concept of propitiation used to describe the effect of the atonement also reinforces this point. John, 1 John 2, 2 says he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that God's not angry anymore for our sins. His wrath has been turned away. It's effective. Now you can't just ignore all of those words. You can't just ignore all of this uh, language of definiteness. From every biblical angle that you look at the death of Christ from, you see definiteness. The whole context of John 10, the whole context of John's Gospel, the whole concept of sacrifice in the Old Testament, and then fulfilled uh, antitypically in Christ, the whole concept of atonement in the New Testament is definite, the whole concept of the effect is definite. You come back to John 10, verse 11, you see that Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for someone. He says in John 10, I lay 
down my life for the sheep. When we confess the doctrine of limited atonement, which is scattered all throughout our confessional statements, we're simply confessing the concept as it is spelled out in Scripture by Jesus and by His apostles and by the whole typical system of sacrifice in the Old Testament, that Jesus died for definite people. And that brings us into our application section this morning. We would say, first of all, as we look back upon uh, Jesus' teaching here in John 10 and the total biblical picture and all of His evidence, and this is going to simply restate what we've already said, that Jesus died for someone when He went to the cross and not no one. Now you have to realize there's only two categories for understanding uh, who Jesus died for. Only two. Either Jesus died for someone... That is, all the people of the world who ever lived, whoever will live, or within that someone, you could say it's more narrower, more definite, a certain number. He died for someone, or he died for no one. You see, that's what indefinite atonement teaches. Indefinite atonement says that Jesus did not go to the cross for one single person. It's indefinite. And when you think of it like that, you can hardly begin to grasp how offensive that must be to the biblical doctrine of God. Everywhere you look in Scripture, you see God being a God of wisdom. A God of power, a God of sovereignty. And yet, indefinite atonement calls all that into question by saying that Jesus went to the cross without any definite plan on behalf of the Father who is everywhere described as wise and sovereign, sends His Son to die for no one and could possibly end up with the entire plan of the atonement being frustrated because nobody wanted Jesus. Can you imagine the only begotten Son of God who is loved with an exhaustive and perfect love being sent to this earth to die for scoundrels and rebels and depraved people and the Father sending Him without any intention to save one person with that death? That's what indefinite atonement teaches That this all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, amazingly loving God who loves His Son with an exhaustive, perfect love sent Him to die for not one single person. It's reckless and aimless. It does not fit with the biblical picture of God, nor does it fit with the biblical evidence. Jesus died for someone, not no one. But secondly, as we apply this concept to ourselves this morning, indefinite atonement makes Jesus' work impersonal and undermines the wonder of divine grace. It undermines the wonder of divine grace to say that Jesus died for no one. Ironically, it's in a hymn... uh, composed by Charles Wesley that the wonder of definite atonement is spelled out in some of the most beautiful lyrical imagery you find in any of the hymnody in the history of the church. In that well-known song, and can it be, we read, it can it be that I should gain an interest 
in the Savior's blood. Died He for me who caused His pain. For me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that my God should die for me? Amazing love. How can it be my God should die for me? That's the wonder. How can it be? God would die for me. That's definiteness. That's the, the wonder of the death is, is that He would die for me, you see. Paul even says that in Galatians chapter 2, verse uh, 20. He says, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the wonder of limited atonement that Jesus wrestles in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when He's praying, He's sweating as it were, great drops of blood, and He pleads, if it be possible, take this cup from Me. If it be possible, take this cup from Me. If it be possible, take this cup from Me. When Jesus emerges from that garden, persuaded of the Father's will for Him, is to go into death and to die on the cross, Jesus goes to the cross with your name engraved on His hand. He goes there for you. He goes to the cross for you, knowing that He is intending to save you. He went to that cross with the name of John Sattel in His hand, miserable, wretched, depraved, sinful, rebellious person that I am. He went there with my name on His hand. It was not for no one, it was for someone. The wonder of the atonement for you as you confess it here this morning is that Jesus went for you. You can say that. He died for me. For me. Who caused this pain. For me. Who Him to death pursued. You see, definiteness puts the thrill and the wonder and the awe and the atonement. He died for me. He didn't deserve it. It was a pure act of love. If we confess limited atonement thirdly, it means we're confessing the same thing that we say in another way. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. If we confess limited atonement, we're simply confessing what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, a definite atonement says the real reason why you're saved is not because of Jesus' work. That would be entirely ineffectual unless you did one thing. You added to it. Your faith. Can you imagine? To say that Jesus' death is all for nothing unless I contribute to it something that I've done? When we really think about it in those terms, I mean, all of us would say, no, 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 we don't want to say that at all. Jesus' death is perfect all on its own. It's redeeming, it's satisfying, it's propitiating, it's reconciling, it's justifying. It's all that it is because of the person who offered it. Is definite. It means then that our salvation has nothing to do with us, but has everything to do with the grace of God to us. But as I conclude this morning, fourthly, 
I think one reason why, and it's even come down to the doctrine of election. We talked about this last week. Why some people choose to reject the clarity of Scripture here. They choose to reject election because it feels like it undermines salvation and assurance of salvation for them. Because they don't know whether they're in or they're out. I think sometimes people reject limited atonement not because the biblical evidence doesn't point to it, but simply because they feel like they can't ever have assurance of election and salvation because they're not sure whether they can say that they're of the number that Jesus died for. And they feel like it undermines their assurance. Well, I'm here saying, in my last point this morning, that limited atonement is the basis for your assurance of salvation. It is absolutely the basis for your assurance. And we see that expressed here in the very words of Christ in John 10.26 when he says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If you turn that statement inside out using the laws of logic and you state the contrapositive, here is what Jesus is saying. You believe because you are my sheep. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe this morning? Don't underestimate that. There's a whole world of people out there who don't believe. There's a whole world of people out there who despise the concept of religion and the concept of Christianity in particular. But Jesus says if you believe, there's a reason. He says you believe because you are my sheep. You see, if you believe this morning, there's no reason to have a lack of assurance about your salvation. There's every reason in the world to be persuaded this morning that you're saved. Because Jesus says you believe because you are His sheep. You should have the confidence this morning to know that you are owned by Christ. Not only are you owned by Christ, but Christ knows you. Isn't that a marvelous fact this morning as you sit here and contemplate the fact that Jesus knows you. Because that's what he says. He knows his sheep. And not only does Jesus know you, but Jesus names you. Jesus names you. You can hardly underscore the language and concept of intimacy and personal love and affection and care than to say he knows me and he's named me. He owns me. Lays down his life for me. You see, on account of John 10.26 and all the rest that we've investigated here in John 10 throughout the scriptures, uh, what you should walk away with this morning is one word upon your lips if you can't have any other there. Certismus. I am certain. I am certain. Jesus' death is my death because I believe. Jesus says, you believe because you are my sheep. And because of all that we have said, because it underscores that salvation is 100% of the Lord, because it says that limited atonement underscores the wonder and the awe of the atonement, and because it provides for us a real assurance we should all be walking away this morning with those words upon our lips. Died He for me who caused His pain. Died He for me Who to him death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that my God would die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that my God 
should die for me specifically, definitely, and intentionally. That's limited atonement. And while the world despises it, many confessing Christians are scandalized by it, we rejoice in it. Because we know that our Father in Heaven loved us so much that He took precise aim at saving us to the point that He sent His Son to die for me. That's limited atonement. That's what we confess. Because Jesus teaches it. The whole Bible testifies to it. And because it's true, we're saved.